Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 52, Enoch, Apocalyptic, and Abrahamic Faith. In this episode, we have set ourselves three tasks. The first is to explore a bit more the other books found in the collection known as One Enoch, which we broached in the previous episode. There are some more cool apocalypses to discuss, as well as various other weird and wonderful bits contained in this enormous tome. Secondly, we want to talk a little bit about the type of Judaism that produced these Enochic writings. What kinds of communities are we looking at here, and what was their relationship with the kinds of Jews who, in retrospect, were the ancestors of what we now know as mainstream rabbinic Judaism? Spoiler alert, there is actually no way to answer this question conclusively, but we'll look at some of the more intriguing scholarly discussions about it. And it will become evident that these discussions have a very serious bearing on our ideas about later Western esotericism and where some of the ingredients of Western esotericism come from. Finally, we'll reach forward in time a bit and start to examine the afterlife of the Enochic writings in later Western esotericism. Again, not all the details are clear, but we do have some fascinating hard evidence for the Enochian writings as a kind of esoteric or alternative non-canonical scripture in later Judaism, Christianity, and even Islam. We won't even begin to explore all the evidence here, but we'll sort of set the stage for later discussion so that, for example, when we come to look at angelic encounters in the Hechelot texts, at the curious angelic hierarchies found in major early Christian authors like Clement of Alexandria, at angelic magic in medieval Christianity and Islam, and many other subjects, we'll be able to say, ah, Enoch, or mmm, Enochian tradition, and know what we're talking about, more or less. So let's get back to one Enoch. We mentioned last time that there are two sections to this compilation which are universally taken to be the oldest levels of the text and which appear in bits in the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are the Book of Watchers and the Astronomical Book. Now let's have a quick look at the latter. The Astronomical Book is a bit of an oddity when compared with other books found in One Enoch because it's concerned, among other things, with calendrical reform and the old question of making solar and lunar calendars work together. If you remember the discussion of the Metonic Cycle, and the Near Eastern solution to the problem, which may have inspired Meton of Athens in episode 40, where we talked about Hellenistic astronomy, we're still in the same territory. But it's obvious that some Near Eastern Jews, at least, didn't get the Metonic memo, and were still arguing over how to date things and how to make the different calendar systems work together. Now, this may have to do with different sects of Judaism at the time, defining themselves in terms of how they marked time. The astronomical book argues for a 364-day solar year, and the lifespan of Enoch in the Torah, as we recall, was the suspiciously solar 365 years. These figures might be artifacts of an Enochic versus Torah-based squabble within Judaism. That's one theory, but the evidence isn't really there to pronounce on the issue but I thought I'd throw it in because it's interesting. Anyhow, the, the astronomical book is interesting also from the perspective of the problem of knowledge transfer from the Babylonian scribal academy into the wider Mediterranean world. Now, 
the Schwepp isn't really about this knowledge transfer, but it is very fascinating. And we do like to look into the roots of things. So we might as well note in this context that both astronomical material found in the astronomical book of Enoch and other aspects of one Enoch, such as the figure of Enoch himself as an antediluvian diviner or seer, have pretty solid and in some cases definitely traceable roots to the scribal culture of the Near East. And so we can say that the long Babylonian tradition was a major influence on the Enochic tradition in some of its aspects. But we won't say any more on this subject here. Um, interested listeners may wish to consult the special episode which we've devoted to these matters. We also won't have too much to say about the parables or similitudes of Enoch, which make up chapters 37 to 71 of 1 Enoch. This is quite a late document. There's nothing from this book in the Qumran scrolls, and it's been dated anywhere from the 1st century to the 3rd century CE. Now, there is an interesting kind of alternative messianism in this book, which we should mention, though we can't make too much of it in this episode, seeing as we have so much territory to cover. In this book, Enoch appears under the name of the Son of Man, and a number of other designations which are normal terms in the Messianic Judaism out of which Christianity was born for the Messiah. So Jesus, for example, is called the Son of Man throughout the Gospels, and this is the term by which people know he is the Messiah. Now, in our book, Enoch appears as the judge figure who will balance the cosmic books at the end of time. So here we have not an apocalypse in the sense of a visionary narrative, but an apocalyptic worldview in the sense that the end times are a common, but interestingly, we don't have Jesus as the guy who will be there at the end, but Enoch instead, the son of man and servant of divine judgment. The similitudes of Enoch is thus part of the worldview, which we've been looking at that arose in Second Temple Judaism, which was expecting a redeemer figure to arise who's going to save the Jewish people. But as in Christianity, this particular text has made this figure one of cosmic significance. We're not talking about the Messiah as he developed in rabbinic Judaism, the kind of flesh-and-blood king figure who's going to make concrete political changes in the Near East and sort the Jewish state out and that sort of thing. And many Jews today are still awaiting the coming of that particular Messiah. Rather, we're talking about a cosmic Messiah, a figure who restores universal justice punishing the wicked and rewarding the elect. And while this is all very familiar from Christianity and Islam, the parables of Enoch, uh, written, let us recall, sometime during the early centuries of the Jesus movement, shows that this mindset was around and was not unique to the Jesus movement. It might even be an accident of history that we have Christianity as a world religion rather than Enochianity. But Anyway, moving on, there are two more apocalypses contained in one Enoch, which we want to discuss. These are known as the Animal Apocalypse and the Apocalypse of Weeks. These are both visionary accounts narrated by Enoch, and they date from a later period than the early stuff found in Watchers and Astronomical, around the time of the Maccabean Rebellion. And here, I'd like to take a little digression into history and politics which so often inform the history of religions in ways which we tend to forget about. 
So what was this Maccabean rebellion, which we've mentioned in an offhand way in the two preceding episodes? It occurs to us that perhaps it's worth exploring it for a minute. And we need to know a bit about it because it provides essential context for understanding these two later apocalypses. So even if you haven't listened to episode 11 of the podcast where we introduced the Jews in the most general way, or episode 49, where we got all second temple you'll know that the Jewish people have taken some buffeting in their time. So in our period, the Hellenistic, taken in a broad sense, let's just recap. The Persian Empire had fallen to Alexander the Great, after which time the notional Jewish homeland of Judea first came under the control of the Ptolemaic dynasty, who were Alexander's successors in Egypt. Then, in about 200 BCE, the Seleucids, who were Alexander's successors in the Near East and Central Asia, so the ones based in Syria, they conquered that bit of the Near East from the Ptolemies. So Judea, and crucially Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple cult was based, was now under the Seleucids, a Near Eastern empire ruled by a Greek-speaking elite. So far, so good. Now, like the Ptolemies, the Seleucids brought the collection of Greek cultural norms known as Hellenism with them. We have the Seleucids to thank for a Greek-style gymnasium in a city of Afghanistan, for example. And there was a whole raft of other cultural baggage of Hellenism, which they were sort of actively presenting to the peoples under their rule as a way of life to be emulated. Now, in the early 160s BCE, trouble started brewing in Jerusalem, and something like a civil war or at least a civil strife broke out among the Jews. We won't get into the details, which are not entirely certain anyway, but the relevant point is that the central authority in the form of King Antiochus IV, known as Epiphanes, who reigned from 175 to 164 BCE, he got involved and he tried, among other things, to determine who would be the next high priest of the Jews. Now, some Jews took umbrage at this, more fighting broke out, and the final result was that what might have been a small regional hoo-ha turned into a full-fledged rebellion, which Antiochus then tried to squash. Antiochus sent troops to pillage the temple in 168 BCE, and then there was a campaign of forced Hellenization, with state troops basically outlawing traditional Jewish practices like circumcision and possibly putting a statue of Zeus in the temple, which, if it happened, would have indeed pissed off all but the most Hellenized Jews. There's some argument over whether that ever really happened or not, but anyway, there was a serious persecution. The Maccabees, a small group of hardcore Jewish traditionalists, went guerrilla and waged war against the Seleucid monarchy, eventually taking over Jerusalem. A body of troops sent to punish them and retake the city in 164 turned back when Antiochus died at an inopportune moment, and in the ensuing transfer of power, the Jewish rebels sort of came to an understanding with the Seleucid monarchy. So they'd gone through this very traumatic experience, but now they founded a dynasty known today as the Hasmonean dynasty, which ruled Judea first as a sort of uneasy, semi-independent region within the Seleucid realm, and then actually as an independent kingdom from Seleucid control between 129 and 63 BCE, at which point the Romans get involved, and we'll return to what happens next when we go full-bore Roman in a few episodes' time. 
So why is all this relevant to us? Well, several reasons. Firstly, as John Collins mentioned in episode 50, one of the reasons for the particular outpouring of end-of-days speculation, and for the kind of spiritualized redeemer figure we see in texts from this period, may have something to do with the fact that under the Seleucid repression, the whole Jewish worldview was being sort of turned upside down. Greek pagan scumbags were not meant to plunder the temple, nor were God's chosen people supposed to be persecuted for following the law. Quite the opposite. So one of the reasons for the union of the political and the spiritual, which we see in Second Temple Judaism, and especially in Apocalypses from this later Hellenistic period, Messiah figures, for example, who come to set up an independent kingdom and drive out the heathen, but might also come at the end of time to right the wrongs which were clearly occurring sort of against the divine order as the Jews were being slaughtered for keeping the law. These figures may stem in part from this crisis. We'll look at similar political arguments again when the Romans come and in 70 CE finish the job that Antiochus started and actually destroy the temple, something that the Jews to this day commemorate in a big way. Hell yes, the Jesus movement was a political movement, among other things, and the destruction of the second temple is of the utmost importance for the rise of Christian messianism. But another point we should make about the Maccabean rebellion is that it was in part a struggle between two types of Jews, Hellenizers and traditionalists, let's call them. So the Hellenizers not only spoke Greek, but were generally at home in the Hellenistic world to a greater and lesser degree. You might not even be able to tell that they were Jews just by looking at them. So for example, the um, candidate for the high priesthood put forward by Antiochus was a man named Menelaus, who is one of the heroes from Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. This is a eminently Greek name. This is not a Jewish name, but this guy was a Jew in Jerusalem. The traditionalists, by contrast, were a, by all accounts, sort of Taliban-ish, no-fun, back-to-the-roots movement with God on their side, who were not willing to compromise on what they saw as their Jewishness. However, as these things do, it gets more complicated than that, because we've now caught up with something which we alluded to in episode 11. The term Jew in English comes ultimately from the Greek word eudaios, and this word first appears in the second book of Maccabees. Now, the first book of Maccabees was maybe originally written in Hebrew, but it only survives in Greek. And the second book of Maccabees was originally written in Koine Greek, the common Greek spoken across the Hellenistic world, the international language of business. Now, these two books of Maccabees are both Jewish works which tell the story of the rebellion and repression from a Jewish point of view. But what is extraordinary is that the second book of Maccabees is actually our earliest attestation of the word eudaios, so that the common name for the Jews in many modern languages was possibly coined by a writer of Hellenistic Greek whose program was to show how being a Hellenizing Jew was a betrayal of the true path, and so forth. The Jews were invented by a Jew writing in Greek who wanted the Jews to stop being so Greek. Now, what does all this have to do with esotericism? Well, we very often see dialectics of exclusion and inclusion in the history of Western esotericism. 
Indeed, the term esoteric implies the existence of an in-group and an out-group. The lesson we can learn from two Maccabees is that while these groups tend to depict themselves in terms of purity and absolute separation, we see again and again cases where the group defining itself as the pure in-group is actually hugely influenced by the out-group. This is part of why the concept of esotericism is such a difficult one for scholars. Because we don't want to be suckered by the propaganda which our sources are spinning about themselves. To take an obvious example, some Christians in the course of time would come to hate the Jews. And the history of Christian anti-Semitism is a depressingly rich field of study. We even have movements like the Christian Identity Movement in the United States who are white supremacist anti-Semites. Now, you would not think that Jesus was a Jew or that Christianity was originally a Jewish movement, judging from these folks' propaganda. But the absurdity of their position reminds us, just like the cultural position taken in two Maccabees, that identity politics have a kind of insane inner logic of their own and have little need of recourse to facts. Anyway, that's the Maccabean Revolt along with a few historical reflections. And by the end of the Maccabean Revolt, when the dust settles, the Jews are the Jews, some of them living in a semi-autonomous kingdom, and a lot of feverish speculation is going on about whether these might not be the end times. So this is the context for the apocalypses we will now turn to. So the animal apocalypse appears in the Book of Dream Visions of Enoch as chapters 83 to 90. The Book of Dream Visions is represented in Aramaic copies from Qumran Cave 4, but again, it's not as ancient as the Watchers and the Astronomical. Chapters 83 to 84 of this book give Enoch's vision of the coming flood, because we have to remember all of this material is being presented as pre-flood ancient wisdom, even though we know it's Hellenistic. Now, chapters 85 to 90 contain the animal apocalypse. This gives us biblical history, basically from Adam and Eve down to Maccabean times, shortly after which the end of time is to come. Now, it's really hard to pick out the historical materials in this apocalypse because the whole thing is set as an allegory of different animals. So here's a taste from chapter 90, 1 through 5. And I saw till that in this manner... Thirty-five shepherds undertook the pasturing of the sheep, and they severally completed their periods as did the first, and others received them into their hands, to pasture them for their period, each shepherd in his own period. And after that I saw in my vision all the birds of heaven coming, the eagles, the vultures, the kites, the ravens, but the eagles led all the birds, and they began to devour those sheep, and to pick out their eyes, and devour their flesh." And the sheep cried out because their flesh was being devoured by the birds. And as for me, I looked on and lamented in my sleep over that shepherd who pastured the sheep. And I saw until those sheep were devoured by the dogs and eagles and kites, and they left neither flesh nor skin nor sinew remaining on them, till only their bones stood there, and their bones too fell to the earth, and the sheep became few. As you can see, the characters in biblical history are not named, but are represented as various kinds of animals. So Israel is a flock of sheep, and God is the lord of the sheep. Israel is attacked by all manner of wild beasts, 
who are taken to represent the various foreign rulers, starting way back with the Babylonians and all the way down to Maccabean times. And finally, there is a final judgment and a special sheep will arise from the flock to set things right. This would be the Messiah. Now, you can imagine the amount of work which has gone into trying to nail down each sheep, horse, ox, raven, kite, eagle, and whatnot in this text to specific historical circumstances, and obviously there's a lot of room for error here. But nevertheless, what scholars mostly agree on is that the final episode represents the Maccabean rebellion and persecutions, and that the end times are depicted as following straight on these events. Now, we're seeing something very different here from what we saw in the Book of Watchers. Back in circa 300 BCE, people were starting to say that there was some kind of meaningful afterlife, and that divine justice would be served in a final judgment. What they're saying now, in the 160s BCE, or very soon after, is that the end is right around the corner. Cue millenarianism, the belief that the end times are upon us, which is a major returning preoccupation in Western esoteric traditions of the Christian world. We shall be meeting it again and again in the course of the podcast. We now turn to our last main section in One Enoch, the so-called Epistle of Enoch, which is also a millenarian work, and from more or less the same time as the animal apocalypse. This Epistle of Enoch is largely a pious work calling on its readers to get right with the Lord, but it contains within it the so-called Apocalypse of Weeks, which is the final visionary account we need to look at from one Enoch. Some of this is preserved in Aramaic, but we mostly know it from the Ethiopian. Now, the weeks in question are not weeks. They're a kind of notional sections of time dividing up the whole of Jewish history, going right back to the beginning. So again, this is a, a historical account presented as prophecy right back at the beginning, looking at the future, but we can now say someone writing around the period of the Maccabean Rebellion, looking back and presenting history as prophecy. So weeks one through six, our previous eras, our author is living in the seventh week, and the end of times will begin in the eighth and last until the tenth. So once again, the end times are right around the corner, but remember that the whole thing is presented as a prophecy of times to come by Enoch, before the flood. Interestingly, the apocalypse is out of order in the Ge'ez version, so we need to read 93, 1 to 10, and then 91, 11 to 17 to get the whole apocalypse of weeks. But because it's full of numbers, it's very easy to reorder it. Now, this is not a dream vision of Enoch. Instead, Enoch is speaking to his children, telling them what he read from the books, or from the heavenly tablets. This is interesting, because the idea of heavenly tablets that a seer can sort of read from extempore is one that will appear again in Islam, among other places, sort of. And also, as some interpreters see it, it might represent a possible rival source of authority being set up by the Enochic Jews to the canonical books of Moses. As in, you've got the books of Moses, big deal, we have the heavenly tablets, which are an eternal and sort of more divine source of authority. But more on that anon. Let's have a quick taste of the Apocalypse of Weeks for your delectation. This is what 
will happen at the end of days. Chapter 91, 15 through 17 of 1 Enoch. And after this, in the tenth week, in the seventh part, there shall be the great eternal judgment, in which he will execute vengeance amongst the angels. And the first heaven shall depart and pass away, and a new heaven shall appear. And all the powers of the heavens shall give sevenfold light. And after that there will be many weeks without number forever. And all shall be in goodness and righteousness, and sin shall no more be mentioned forever. Right. New and better heaven, old world destroyed, peace and righteousness thenceforward. So, we've now introduced the great compilation One Enoch and pointed out some of what we find most interesting in it. There's a heck of a lot more of interest in it, so do check it out. Now, we promised in the last episode to try to define what we mean by Enochic. As in, if we speak of an Enochic tradition, are we talking about just texts that mention Enoch and that's it? Or was there an Enochic Jewish tradition active in the Second Temple period? And if so, how were they different from other Jews? What made them Enochic? What, in short, do we mean by Enochic beyond the mere name Enoch appearing in a text? Well, people ask me that a lot, and I always say the same thing. We should start right back in 1914, when the great scholar of this stuff, R.H. Charles, whose translations we've been reading, had this to say about the Enochic movement in Judaism. Quote, Inasmuch as prophecy had died out long before the Christian era, and its place had been taken by apocalyptic, it was from the apocalyptic side of Judaism that Christianity was born. And in that region of Palestine where apocalyptic and not legalism held its seat, the existence of two forms of Pharisaism in pre-Christian Judaism, i.e. the apocalyptic and the legalistic, which were the historical forerunners, respectively, of Christian and Talmudic Judaism, demands here further notice. End of quote. So Charles is saying that the Enochic texts and other apocalyptic texts, which we haven't covered in our podcast, but you want to check out the bibliographies and explore this rich literature on your own, these texts represent a kind of Judaism different from legalist Judaism. So what is legalist Judaism? Well, it's a curious fact that rabbinic Judaism and all modern-day Jews, pretty much, define themselves in terms of two things. The covenant between Abraham and God, which makes the Jews God's special people, and the law given in the books of Moses. Now, these two things are a glaring omission in the Enochic texts. In the animal apocalypse, which retells the whole sacred history of the Jews as God's flock of sheep, there is no covenant recorded. Now, this is an argument from silence, which we as historians don't like. Maybe the apocalyptic authors did believe in the covenant and just sort of happened not to mention it. But it's a pretty deafening silence, considering the importance of the idea of the covenant in what later became mainstream Talmudic Judaism. The same goes for the law, with a capital L. Modern-day observant Jews are all about the law, which governs everything from marriage to what you can eat to how you pray to when you can have sex. You name it. We just don't find this in the apocalyptic texts. There's references to divine law, for sure. Don't get me wrong, but you don't have anything about what foods are okay to eat. 
any of this stuff. We don't have the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. None of that stuff seems to show up. This has led some scholars like Charles to theorize two approaches to Jewish religion in our period within the broad movement known as Pharisaic Judaism. The legalistic, which would then evolve into rabbinic Judaism, and the apocalyptic, which would evolve into Christianity. So this is big stuff. Does it hold up? Well, things have come a long way since Charles's time, and the whole enterprise is made more difficult by the sketchiness of our sources, obviously. But the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls injected new life into the debates, because these were the actual original texts being read by a group of Jews in the Hellenistic period, and these Jews were obviously pretty apocalyptic in their leanings. Now, many scholars also want to bring the Essenes into the argument. The Essenes are a hypothetical, super-strict group of Jews whom the famous Judeo-Roman turncoat and historian Josephus talks about. So he talks about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes as three groups of Jews. The Essenes separated themselves off from the main Sadducee and Pharisee groups and went off to live in the desert because they were so serious about their Judaism. So scholars put forward Essene hypotheses, identifying the Enochics with the Essenes. And actually, it's much more nuanced than this, but the apocalyptic Enoch writers, the Essenes, and the Jews who produced the Qumran documents have all been discussed in various ways as possibly being either the same folks or relatives on a spectrum of Jewish belief or somehow interwoven in some way. Unfortunately, we mostly only really hear about the Essenes by that name from Josephus, writing in Greek. So the Essenes are a little bit like the Druids in Britain. Roman authors talk about the Druids, but no one on the ground in Britain records even the name Druid until much later. So some scholars doubt whether there were ever any Druids, while others want to attribute, you know, sort of this or that bit of archaeology or this or that bit of other evidence or what have you to the Druids. It's a different case in the Near East, obviously, because unlike ancient Britain, we have many written documents coming from the Near East, but still the Essene question remains a hotly debated one in scholarly circles. And there's a lot more hypotheses out there about who the Enochics may have been, and we can't get into all of them here, nor am I a real expert on this stuff. But there are a few points of reference which I hope will not unduly aggravate any careful scholars of Second Temple Judaism, which I think we can use to sum up this episode and the one before it, and use as um, springboards for further discussions in the podcast. Firstly, the Enochic texts do represent something called apocalyptic, which, although it is a modern scholarly term, does have a concrete historical reality that it refers to. To quote John Collins's influential definition from 1979, quote, apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, and spatial, insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Okay, so far so good. What then would be the apocalyptic worldview which went along with these writings? Well, there are always troublesome exceptions here, like, for example, where are the angelic mediators in the Apocalypse of Weeks that we just looked at, where Enoch is reading off the invisible heavenly tablets? 
and the list goes on. You, people are always finding exceptions when someone tries to draw up a, a definition of apocalyptic. Someone else will say, ah, yes, but what about the Book of Jubilees? What about this? But we shouldn't let these points blind us to some majorly important and new beliefs, which as part of an overall tendency are typical of apocalyptic Judaism. Whatever apocalyptic Judaism was exactly, they tended to believe that there will be an end to the world. It will involve a judgment. There may be, in the later apocalypses, a redeemer figure who presides over this judgment, someone other than God, a human being. Sometimes this human being will take some kind of angelic form, but nevertheless starts out as a human. The Mosaic law and the covenant of Abraham are not a big deal, but getting right with the Lord in the lead up to the end times is a big deal. There are hierarchies of angels. There are also fallen angels with their own hierarchies. This brings us to our next point. Interestingly, most of these ideas are taken for granted in mainstream Christianity and Islam, but we do not find them in legalistic Judaism, or we don't find most of them. We will see uh, lots of cool angelic hierarchies in all three Abrahamic faiths, but they tend to be esoteric, like within Kabbalah, for example, rather than mainstream. But the idea of chucking the law and being judged by God based on other criteria than adherence to the law, this is just something that you do not get in the Talmudic ethos in rabbinic Judaism. Something is going on here of great historical import. Whether we can say with Charles that there was an apocalyptic group of Jews out of which Christianity evolved, and I should say here that his view is actually much more sophisticated than that, and he uses, brings in a lot more evidence and so on and so forth. But anyway, if we say that with Charles, or we need to be more guarded in our approach and perhaps say there was this apocalyptic tendency within Pharisaic Judaism in this later Second Temple period, but it didn't necessarily imply something like a separate sect. Either way, it's undeniably clear that something was started in the apocalyptic texts and presumably the apocalyptic Judaism behind them, which led to an absolutely radical transformation of the Western world. While Enochic Judaism may not have simply mutated into Christianity, and there ends the story, it is safe to say that without Enochic Judaism, you would never have had Christianity, nor would you have had Islam. So, what's so esoteric about all this? I mean, aside from the angelic hierarchies. Well, this brings us to our final subject for this episode, the afterlife of the Enochian texts. So to start with, if only Jews are reading this stuff out in their sort of commune at Qumran or whatever, how would it even have an effect on developments like Christianity? Well, putting together all the evidence, it turns out that actually loads of people were reading these texts in the Hellenistic period. We know that they were all extant in Greek, in antiquity, and we even have Latin fragments of parts of one Enoch showing up in the far Western Roman lands later on. It turns out that even though they never made it into the canonical collections of Christian texts outside of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, the books of Enoch were being read really widely in the ancient world and into the medieval world and beyond. We find a quotation from one Enoch in the New Testament in the Epistle of Jude 1, 14-15. Now this is indisputable, but many scholars want to go further, arguing that the whole approach and even the style and diction of the Enochic books informs the whole New Testament. That like the New Testament is a kind of reaction and development of Enochic uh, ways of thinking and writing. 
And we can't overlook the fact that a radical new kind of apocalypse, the book of Revelations, is a canonical Christian work in any flavor of Christianity. So there's at least a hint of Enoch in the Christian canon right from the get-go, and possibly a lot more. Then, when we turn to the movements of late antiquity known as Gnosticism, we will see an explosion of apocalyptic writings, a kind of second wave of apocalypses, and many of them are rather Enochic in some ways. And the question of orthodoxy versus exclusion will arise again in Christianity in a big way in late antiquity. So Charles's idea of an apocalyptic versus a legalistic Judaism sort of seems applicable here as well, but this time we have an apocalyptic versus legalistic or canonical Christianity. Now, I don't want to push that parallelism very far at all, but rest assured, the Enochic tradition and apocalyptic more generally will resurface when we discuss those arch-heretics, the heroes of Western esotericism, the Gnostics. But okay, the Gnostics are a late antique movement, I hear some listener object. This Enochic stuff, after late antiquity, then surely disappears. I mean, in, it's not there in the Middle Ages, right? All due respect to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, but they're not exactly the biggest contenders on the field of who's got the biggest church in medieval times. Well, gentle listener, it turns out that the stories and ideas from one Enoch refused to die, but sort of went underground in the Middle Ages. And they keep popping their heads up again and again in the weirdest places. The book known as Two Enoch, or Slavonic Enoch, which we mentioned last episode, how did that end up being copied in medieval monasteries in Bulgaria? No one knows. There was a lot going on behind the scenes here, and we look forward to exploring as much of it as can be explored in future episodes. We'll finish this episode with the 9th century East Roman historian, George Sinkelos, whose work Chronographia is perhaps the first universal history, recounting everything of note which has happened since Adam and Eve down to 9th century Orthodox Rome. Sinkelos is, of course, a staunch Orthodox Christian writing at the court in Constantinople, so no heresy here. So what does he tell us about events before the flood? It turns out that the angels saw the daughters of men, lusted after them, and that their unnatural coupling gave birth to a race of giants who then ran amok, forcing God to send a flood to purge the world. Now, Sinkelis might have picked up a few hints about this story from the canonical verses of Genesis, but in fact, it's clear that he's reading some source reliant on the Book of Watchers, if not the Book of Watchers itself. Enoch, it seems, was alive and well in the Middle Ages, but underground. Sometimes, as in the chronography, he's been sort of assimilated by mainstream narratives. But as we shall see, there are other Enochic currents which play out very much in the shadows of Western consciousness, in esoteric currents of Christianity and Islam. And we shouldn't forget rabbinic Judaism either. Now, listeners at this point are thinking, that's all very well, but I'm actually a bit bored with Enoch's visions of history and heavenly flaming palaces. I want to get some heavenly flaming palace visions of my own. All this apocalyptic is too descriptive. Where's the instruction manual? How can I ascend into the heavens and see the divine secrets for myself? Fear not, gentle listeners. In our next episode, we shall turn to the Hechelot and Merkava traditions and get serious about visionary ascents to the divine realm on a practical basis. Until then, make like the medieval Enochic textual tradition 
and stay esoteric.